So, Father, we come together in agreement over the word of the Lord tonight. We love your word. We thank you for your word. Your word has such power. The Bible describes it as a double-edged sword. It will penetrate. It will get where it needs to go. It is powerful, alive, and active. And, Lord, we pray for the word tonight that I believe this is the word of the Lord that you've given me for us tonight. This is what you're speaking to us. And I'm asking you, Lord, that you would anoint me and speak through me everything that needs to be said. It will be thoroughly covered, and Lord, it will be powerful. And as this word goes out under a mighty anointing, I pray that everyone that's hearing this, whether it's live or it's a recording, that the Holy Spirit would really move into where they are and would begin to captivate all of us and get help give us good fertile soil of hearts and minds. Just move upon our hearts, move upon our, our intellect, and help us not to be distracted, but to get locked in and focused to what God's saying. And that by the Spirit of God, people have eyes and ears of the Spirit, that God would anoint them to be able to see and be able to hear. And Lord, I pray as you speak through me, let it be living seeds of truth and revelation knowledge that will land in good soil. And it'll be watered by the Holy Spirit and caused to take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. How many knows we need some roots? And Lord, I pray that this will really get in us and get roots down as the Word of God. And I pray that the wind of your Holy Spirit is going to carry this everywhere it needs to go. Lord, it will be like a washing of the water of the Word. It will be a bright, shining light of truth because it's your Word and it's not anybody's opinion. It's the Word of God. Let it be a bright, shining light that dispels the darkness and lies and deception of the evil one and brings revelation knowledge. Lord, let your word be like a hammer that's going to break down strongholds, religion, traditions of men, deceptions. It's going to break through those things like a, the walls of Jericho. It's going to shatter them. They're going to come down in a sword that gets through and penetrates. And Lord, we ask you that you bless this word of God. It's going to get where it needs to go, do what it needs to do. Let your blessing be upon this sermon in every way. And Lord, we thank you. The Bible says that the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So Lord, we take authority and we bind up everything of the enemy that would try to hinder this word in any way from getting where it needs to and doing what it needs to accomplish. We bind you now and we command you in the name of Jesus, back off. We break your power right now. Lord, let your mighty angels just clear away any spiritual warfare and let this be powerful and effective as you speak through me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I'm dealing with uh, the subject of the rapture of the remnant bride. Okay. So thank you guys so much that took care of the notes for me. I really appreciate that. Um, we'll go through this together. And I'm all, there's a lot of different things to cover. But I'm mainly just going to be reading over some of this. I'm not going to have the time to really go in depth in certain areas, but I gave you scriptures and I gave you like a line of thinking so that you can go home and you can meditate on that and you can look up the scriptures for yourself. But I'm going to try to cover all this pretty quickly here. Um, so the word rapture, some people said, what's well, not in the Bible. Well, it is and it isn't. It's the word harpazo. And harpazo is the Greek word that's used. And I believe it's the Latin Vulgate, if I'm not mistaken, but from, from that Greek word harpazo, when they translated into Latin, there's a Latin word, something like rapturo or something, but that's where we get rapture from. It's not, it's not a bad translation. It's not at all. Rapture is actually a good translation of the word harpazo, but harpazo means like a catching away. 
And somebody had asked a, a Greek person that was fluent in Greek, because to those living in Greece now, this type of Greek would be similar to us reading like the old King James or something. Does that make sense? We understand it. We just don't really use it all the time. But somebody asked him, said, uh, so what would the word harpazo mean? And he said, well, let me give you an example. He said, if I was walking down the sidewalk and my child stepped out into a street and there was a coming car, and he said, I quickly grabbed him and jerked him like this out of danger unto me, he said, that would be the way you would use the word harpazo, like a snatching out of danger, a catching away. And so I found that pretty interesting. So the word harpazo for me You'll hear me say a lot of times, the catching away. I like that phrase, the catching away of the remnant bride. I don't believe that everybody that goes to church, and I don't believe that everybody that calls themselves a Christian is going to be raptured at all. But there is a bride, there is a remnant bride that will make herself ready, as the Bible says. They, they will draw near to God, the Holy Spirit will do a work in them, and they will be ready when he comes like a thief in the night, okay? So let's dive into this. This was something I just wanted to open with. Um, it seems like in these latter days, Satan has really tried to make this a controversial thing. But I found this really interesting. There was a group of Christians that went to this event, and they were there to pray against it, really. But there was an individual named Benjamin Krim, or Krim that supposedly he channels this being which we know to be a demon okay but he channels this being that calls itself lord matreya <laughs> and so let me just read you this this is straight out of the writings that they were giving it says lord matreya was welcomed in northern california at a wealthy episcopalian church there were about 400 people present benjamin krim who is the guy that channels this demon is the one um anyway most people in the audience were those that were in the new age so this was a very new age crowd now anybody knows about new age it has to do with there's a god you're your own god you're within you as god and it's very linked to like yoga and other things like that but it's just a bizarre religion that you can look into if you feel led to but anyway they were new age and because of that, because of their meditation practices and the yoga and things that New Age practice, they quickly came under his demonic control. And the Christians there said that it looked like they went into a trance. But of course, they weren't affected like that as Christians. But they said it was very interesting that when Maitreya emerged through Benjamin Krim and started speaking, that he spent... 30 minutes ridiculing the rapture. And the Christians that were there said they found that really interesting that that demonic thing would spend that much time doing that. And they made the observation that obviously Satan thought it enough of a threat to have his servants devote some time to try to discredit it. All right, here's a couple other things. David Yonggi Cho, who pastors a church in Korea, South Korea. I love Dr. Cho. He's one of my favorite teachers on prayer. If you want to learn how to pray, 
Look up Dr. Cho on YouTube and get his books on prayer. He is a wonderful man of prayer. But anyway, he wrote a book um, called the Apocalypse. Wait, let me think. It's, uh, I think it's called the Apocalyptic Prophecy. But anyway, he wrote a book that has to do with the end times, and it's the book of Daniel and Revelation, and it's just like an expository book on that. But this is what he wrote in there. He said, regrettably, even though the Bible makes a clear distinction between the two comings of Christ, and man, it does. He said, some people are still mistaken in the interpreting of what will happen. And when they teach that the church will go through the tribulation, they not only hurt themselves, but also lead others astray. And so there's many great Bible teachers like Dr. Cho, Derek Prince. There's people that are not spirit-filled per se, uh, like uh, Chuck Missler and others that most serious Bible scholars, most of them really believe the rapture. Um, and let me just keep moving along with this introduction. But, you know, if I was to describe to you an event and I told you, you know what? That night, it was dusk. You could see the stars starting to come out. It was really cold. There was like a northern wind blowing in. It was chilly. It was misting some. Everybody there was bundled up and said it was really something. And then I was to tell you another description. I said, well, on that day, it was hot out. The sun was blazing. And I was to give you a totally different description. You would pretty quickly start determining he's talking about two different days here. There's no way that you can put these two together. And so I'll show you that as we go. Now, Yom Teruah, which is the day of trumpets, the feast of trumpets, is what we're at right now, prophetically speaks of this day. So let me just go ahead and say this about the feast. The feast or God's prophetic timeline. I can't devote too much time with it, but Jesus died on Passover day. Not the day before, not the day after. He died on Passover. And so he was our Passover lamb. He was buried in the tomb during the feast of unleavened bread. He, his body, was like unleavened bread. You know, his body, it says, would not decay. He was without sin, but he was in the tomb during unleavened bread. Jesus rose from the dead on first fruits. Not the day before, not the day after. He rose on first fruits. Then we know 50 days later, on what we call the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, on that day, not the day before, not the day after, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out. And that was the birth of the church. And so these are, this, the feast days are God's prophetic timeline, and those aspects, those first feasts, the spring feast into the summer are already fulfilled, so they're past tense. So that leaves the other three. Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, speaks of the rapture of the remnant bride. That's the next event on God's prophetic calendar. Then you have Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. That has to do with the judgment i'm going to get into that here in a moment the judgment that's going to come on the world the judgment also that's going to come on israel and it has to do with the seven-year tribulation which is really the days of jacob's trouble and then finally the feast of tabernacles sukkot this has to do with jesus physically coming and putting his feet 
on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will split. He's going to walk down into Jerusalem, and he's going to begin to rule and reign over the earth. So the Lord is going to physically come and tabernacle here. It's not a meeting in the air. His second coming, his glorious appearing, he's going to reign for a thousand years. Okay, And so that's the fall feast. And many believe, just as the earlier feast, that those specific days were somehow connected to what happened. Many believe the fall feast on those days will be significant about um, the end times being fulfilled, and they probably will. But let me just tell you a little bit about Yom Teruah. The priesthood, the Kohanim, would station people because this is a feast that you don't know exactly when it's going to start because every other feast, it's like on this day. But on this feast, it has to do with the new moon. And so as soon as that moon starts the crescent, then begins the feast of trumpets. And so what the Kohanim, the priest would do, they would have people that would be stationed on the top of mountains and they would be watching if the sky was clear and as soon as that moon began to crescent they would build a bonfire and set on fire to be a signal then others would see it and they would build theirs and so the priests knew that the watchmen that they put out there that now they're stating it's time so they would begin to blast the shofar and the people knew that the feast of trumpets had begun but it's interesting because it became known as a feast that you don't know the exact day nor the exact hour that it begins. It took watchmen really watching and paying attention for when it began. That's interesting, isn't it? All right, so as we go through this, I believe that you guys are going to see a lot of interesting things. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 now, to understand end-time prophecy, you have to understand Genesis to Revelation because it's all throughout there, the types and shadows, the symbolism. And you've got to be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together because God's given us a lot of different pieces. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Don't skip over that word. It's a mystery. We will not all sleep, talking about dying, but we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So everybody blink, ready? How quick was that? That's how quick people are going to be changed. I always think about it. Do you think people are going to have time to repent and get things right with God? It's going to be the harpazo, the snatching. It says, at the last trumpet. So we need to determine what that is, and I'll get to that later. For the trumpet, this is a shofar, will sound. And when that specific shofar sounds, the dead will be raised. And they will be changed. And we know it goes on to say those of us that are alive and remain will be changed and all that. So, all right, this is, this is a, a description in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That last trump, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised. All right. This is what the Bible calls the first resurrection. And it has to happen because we have to be given our glorified bodies. See, the early church was not thinking that it's going to be 2,000 years for the Lord to return. They believed that it was going to be in their lifetime. So they were anticipating. And as time began to go on and people were dying, they began to get very concerned. Well, what's going to happen to the people that have died 
And so Paul, in his earlier writings to the Thessalonians, he had to write and say to them and deal with that issue, which I'll talk about that here in a moment. But he had to deal with those that have died, and he was comforting them and telling them, look, you know, there's going to come a time whenever the dead in Christ will rise and all that. But here's the important point about that. There has to be this resurrection. Because, see, when people die right now in Christ, your body is down in the ground and begins to decay but your spirit and soul, that's going to be with the Lord in heaven. And so you don't have, when you die right now, you're not instantly given a glorified body yet. But when this happens, this event that people call the rapture to catching away, when this shofar sounds, the dead in Christ are going to be raised first. Their bodies are going to be raised to incorruptible. They're going to be given glorified bodies to be caught up in the air with the Lord. And those of us that are alive and are ready, we're going to be changed in a moment in glorified bodies, into glorified bodies. And we're going to be caught away with the Lord. So the early church was looking for Jesus in their lifetime. The Thessalonians were the ones that Paul, his early writings was to the church of Thessalonica dealing with this issue. So let me read some of that in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He said, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Talking about those who died. Now, let me just back up for a second. Remember I told you to remember the word mystery? So up until that point, I've got to cover this real quick and leave it. But up until that point, everything had centered around Israel. And Jesus comes. And now as he died and, and, and Israel by and large rejected him and he ascended, there was a time there where God had to do something different and it was that the gospel was going to go to the nations. And so Paul, Paul accepted the Lord. He had that encounter with Jesus. And the Bible says about Paul that he disappeared for some time as seeking God alone in Arabia. And many Bible scholars believe that he actually went to Mount Sinai. And at Sinai, he began to have these powerful encounters with God. And this is where he was getting divine revelation that was like mysteries. And it's interesting because mysteries in the Bible, one of the mysteries was the mystery of the church. Interesting that the Old Testament prophets, they really didn't see the church. This is another subject for another time, but it was a mystery that was revealed later. In the same way, people haven't seen this rapture but it was a mystery that was revealed to Paul that he's writing about. And I believe that's one of the reasons why a lot of people have a hard time really understanding it because it's a mystery. Does this make sense tonight? All right, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who sleep so that you will not, be, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this is why we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. So that makes me wonder, is it the Lord that's shouting there? But there's a shout and the voice of the archangel and the shofar of God is going to blast. And the dead in Christ will rise 
then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So this is a meeting in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, let me just kind of give a few more scriptures. First Thessalonians 1, 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we have with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Verse uh, chapter 5 verse 9 for God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we will live together with him therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing in Revelation 16 15 behold I am coming like a thief blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes unstained so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. In Luke 21, 36, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. So God has given us these little scriptures to put together and it creates, you know, like, you guys ever put together a puzzle? Everybody has. And you got to do the outline? Okay, we've got the outline. That's pretty simple. But now God starts giving us little pieces. You start getting all these pieces, and you start putting it together, and pretty soon you start seeing the picture. And that's what God's doing here. And so first off, let me just say that God has not appointed his remnant bride for wrath. Now some people say, well, you know, people just want to escape this, that, and the other. No, there's a big difference. Please hear me. There's a big difference between persecution and the wrath of God. Let me say that again. There's a big difference between being persecuted and the wrath of Almighty God. They're not the same thing. Right now, the church is persecuted. The church has always been persecuted. And until Jesus comes, the church will continue to be persecuted. Our brothers and sisters, did you know that the population of Christianity has dropped dramatically in the Middle East? Right now. Because of all the persecution that's been there. Many have been martyred. Others have had to flee for their life and uproot their family and go to other nations. So it's, there's always going to be persecution. We're kind of promised that, but we are not appointed for God's wrath. That's a totally different thing. The wrath of God is laid up for the wicked. It is not laid up for the bride of Christ. So the Bible makes that clear. And uh, I know that some kind of mock this um, calling it escape mentality or whatever. Um, you know, while we're here, let me just say, we're believing God to see revival and see souls saved and press on into the things of God and understand that there's going to be persecution. So we're going to endure what we need to, but we're going to keep going after God. But this is what Jesus says. You need to be careful what you mock and make fun of because I've, I've learned down through the years that a lot of times people mock things that they don't even understand. I've seen that with revival. Some would be weeping off in a corner, speaking in tongues, and somebody's mocking them. They don't even know what they're doing. But look at the wor- listen to the words of Jesus Christ himself in Luke 21, 36. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape. So see, the people that are mocking this escape thing, 
They don't realize what they're doing. Jesus said that you might escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. So there's going to be a group of people, let me say this and move off of it, about prayer. One of the, the people that I believe that their life is like a prophetic picture and shadow, if you will, of the coming rapture is the life of Enoch. You remember how Enoch walked with God in a very wicked generation? But he had such a prayer life that the Bible says in the Amplified that he habitually walked with God. He, it became to him a habit to just walk in communion with God. Let me just give you a side note. I believe if, if I remember correctly, Noah was Enoch's grandson. But Noah was the first one to be born that would not have had the opportunity to go meet Adam. A lot of people don't know that because Adam lived to like something like 900 years. But I suspect that Enoch went to Adam and talked to him. And Adam was telling him about how he used to walk with God in the cool of the day. And Enoch began to just be so hungry for that. And he began to pursue that relationship. And Enoch began to be somebody that really, if you, if you read about his life, there's some extra biblical writings that he goes off for periods of time and disappears and just seeks God and then comes back with revelation and people sat at his feet, he taught him. But Enoch was a man that really walked with God. He was a man of prayer. And the Bible says that in that very wicked generation that he lived, that God raptured him out of it. He caught him away. He snatched him out because he was there one day and gone the next. In the Bible, we were, we've you know, read right here that it says over and over to make sure that you're watching. So the important thing I want to say about this is that to watch is synonymous with prayer in the Bible. That's why the Bible describes prayer warriors as watchmen. Because the watchmen would be the ones that would stay up at night and they would guard the city and they had to stay awake and they would just watch out and make sure if there was ever danger, they would sound the alarm. But the Bible describes prayer warriors as watchmen and the Bible commands us to make sure that you're watching and you're praying. And the reason why is because Jesus said that he'll come at a time that we're not expecting. And like Enoch, Enoch was a man of prayer. So I say all that to say this. I believe that the remnant bride is going to be a group of people scattered all over the world that the Holy Spirit is going to begin to draw them into prayer. Like an Enoch. And there are people out there that they'll make all the excuses in the world as to why they don't have time for it. They have time to watch their TV show, their sports, to go do things they want to do. They make time for that. But all of a sudden, they don't have time to pray. What it is is that, let me make it real clear, they're carnal. They're still fleshly. They feed their flesh, but they don't feed the spirit man. They're carnal. And God had to deal with this in my life to become a person of prayer many years ago. And down through the years, if you'll consistently develop a prayer life, it's like you keep dying daily. That's how you die to your flesh is in prayer. You keep dying daily and putting the flesh under. And it's like you become more and more dead to the flesh every passing year. 
and you walk more in the spirit and years ago i had to really spend some time in prayer to be able to get into god's presence but it's like god keeps di digging out all that carnality out of us and all that worldliness and and after many years many years of just keeping a prayer life now it's not hard to pray at all you i can just kind of enter in pretty quickly but it's because of a developed relationship over a long period of time but god is going to call all of us to a life of prayer and i believe this with all my heart you'll you'll see it down through all of this that i'm going to show you that god is painting us a picture that there's going to be a remnant bride that are going to be a people that burn for him and that are going to be a people that are given to prayer they're watching and they're praying and they're looking and they're getting their lives purified their garments purified and they're going to be ready when the lord sounds that shofar all right excuse me so let's go ahead and look at these two different comings we're going to move pretty quickly i'm going to give you two descriptions here about the coming of the lord you have a description of jesus meeting us in the air and then you have a description of his feet touching the mount of olives they're two totally different descriptions there's no way they're the same so let's start with the all eyes will see him As I said before, Paul got saved. He went out to Arabia where he spent time probably going to Mount Sinai. God showed him divine revelation. He gave him mysteries that he wrote about in his writings and through that became doctrine for us today. But I want you to think about it. One event that I'm going to describe is seen by the whole world, but another event will not be seen by the world. They'll see the result of it, but they won't see it when it happens. So let me give you the all eyes will see him event, the event where his feet touched the Mount of Olives and his glorious appearing. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, this is talking about the Jews in Jerusalem, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him so it is to be amen matthew 24 27 for just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west so will the coming of the son of man be how many knows everybody's gonna see that luke 17 24 just like lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky shines to the other part of the sky so will the son of man be in his day let's read a few more scriptures acts 1 9 you guys remember when the disciples were talking with jesus in acts 1 8 he said you'll go wait in jerusalem you'll be clothed with power and you'll be my witnesses and then jesus began to float up off the mount of olives and ascend up into the clouds let me just read that event and after he said these things he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going behold two men in white clothing stood beside them they're angels obviously and they also said men of galilee why do you stand looking into the sky this jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven 
Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day journey. So the prophecy that these angels gave was this. The same way that he left is the exact same way he's going to come back. And so we read that in Zechariah 14.4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will split in the middle from the east and west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. This is Jesus' glorious appearing when all eyes will see him. Everybody say all eyes. So everybody's going to see him. It's going to be like a bright shining light that's seen. It's not going to be a hidden thing. And it's not going to be some secret meeting in the air. He's coming down to the Mount of Olives and his feet are going to hit that thing. It's going to split in two. And he's coming in to rule and reign for a thousand years. This is his glorious appearing. Let me give you a few more scriptures about end time prophecy here. Daniel 2.34, you continued looking until the stone was cut out with hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like the chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind came and carried it away. There was not a trace of it found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That speaks of Christ's glorious appearing because Jesus is the stone that's cut out of the mountain of God. And that statue that Daniel saw, remember this very briefly, the head of gold, the, the chest of silver, the loins of, uh, of um, bronze, and then it was the iron legs. That was the kingdoms of that time. It represents the kingdoms of the world. When Jesus comes, the Bible says the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. He is a stone that's cut out of the mount of God that's going to strike the earth and hit those kingdoms. They're going to come down under his rulership. He's going to dominate. He's going to rule them with a rod of iron. And his kingdom is going to be like that stone that strikes the earth and then it grows into a huge mountain. Mountains in the Bible speak of governments. It's talking about Christ coming, striking the kingdoms, and then his government will encompass the earth. Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. Verse 12, his eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Remember the priestly garments? See, in the Jesus' parables, it talks about the wedding feast and the wedding garments. The wedding feast and the wedding garments are the same thing as the priestly garments, okay? So here we are, we're coming back with white garments. And the Bible says that the armies of heaven were following him, dressed in those white garments. In verse 15, coming out of Jesus' mouth was a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. In Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms or the kingdom of our Lord and Messiah 
and he will reign forever and ever. Does any of that sound like a secret catching away to you? None of it. All of it is for all eyes to see. It's like a bright shining light. He's coming back where everybody's going to see it. The nations are going to crumble under his rule. He's coming to take over. It's not going to be a secret thing. This is going to be a very public display of God's power and Christ's rulership on the earth. This is when he comes in what we call his glorious appearing at the end of the tribulation time. See, at that time, there's a scripture that says that when he comes, he will send his angels to gather the elect. What you have to understand is there's going to be people, there's going to be one-third of the Jews that survive the tribulation supernaturally. They're protected. Probably in Jordan and Petra, they're going to be hid away. But, you know, anyway, they're going to be protected. But also, there's very possibly some Christians that went off the grid and, uh, you know, they lived off the land, if you will, and they survived it. But Jesus is going to send, when he comes, he's going to send his angels, and they're going to go and gather the elect unto him. But this is going to be at his glorious appearing. All right, now, let's shift and talk about the catching away. This is before the tribulation time. You remember how Jesus had two ascensions? When Jesus first raised from the dead... And Mary saw him. He told Mary, don't touch me. I haven't ascended to the Father yet. But then later, he appears to the disciples and he tells them, come here and touch me. And then we know from reading Acts 1, 8, 9 that he ascended that time. So there was some kind of a secret ascension. And Bible scholars that have studied this out believe, and I believe this is my opinion as well, that when Jesus raised from the dead and appeared to Mary... He told her to go back and be a witness for him, but he ascended into heaven. And he dealt with some kind of an issue in the temple of heaven that goes back to the fall of Lucifer. There was some kind of a purification or his blood, he entered the most holy place. But anyway, that was a secret ascension. But then we have an ascension where everybody that was there saw him. In the same way, Jesus is going to descend twice. He's going to descend into the air where there's a secret catching away that the world's not going to see and they're not going to even know what happened till the next day when all these people disappear. Then everybody's going to know. As it's going to make the news, man. Millions of people disappeared. And a lot of these goofy people are going to say, aliens came and stole them. <laughs> you know they're going to say it. They're going to say anything they can to explain away the rapture. But anyway, there's going to be this secret catching away. But then there's also going to be a coming that all eyes see him, which I just described. So let's talk about the secret catching away. In Luke 12, 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor any moth destroys for where your treasure is your heart will be also be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit remember some of these phrases because they come up in different ways throughout different parables be dressed in readiness this has to do with the priestly garments the bridal garments and he said keep your lamps lit you guys will see this here in a little bit 
Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns. So what does the Bible keep saying over and over? Watch. Be a watchman. That has to do with prayer. Stay in prayer. Keep your eyes upward. Look for his coming. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast. So that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will gird himself to serve. And have them recline at the table. What table? The marriage supper of the Lamb. And will come up and wait on them. So Jesus is going to go around and wait on us. He's the king. But he's so humble. Whether he comes in the, remember this, whether he comes in the second watch or even the third, and he finds them so blessed are those slaves. What, what did he say? They're dressed in readiness. And they're looking, they're ready when he comes. They're ready, they're watching, they're praying, they're watchmen. He may come in the second, he may come in the third watch. I'll explain a little bit more about that. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, and remember Jesus is coming like a thief in the night, he would have not allowed this house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise, sensible servant whom his master will put in charge of the servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom the master finds so doing when he comes. So God's going to put people in positions to, to help take care of the flock, to feed them the word of God, and to help take care of things. And he's saying blessed are those that are faithful in their doing. What God's called them to do when he comes. But we've got to be faithful. Truly I say to you. He will put them in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart. My master is a long time coming. And begins to beat the other slaves. Begins to be abusive to God's people both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. Isn't that interesting that we're seeing all of this weird drunkenness coming into the body of Christ now and that Jesus said this 2,000 years ago. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and he will cut him into pieces. I don't want to find out what that means. Let's just leave that to your imagination. But I take it literal. And assign him a place with the unbelievers. So these are people that were among God's people that are now being assigned with the unbelievers. Where are the unbelievers? Hell. See, it's interesting because sometimes the reason why people get away from this rapture doctrine has to do with a lifestyle. It's not always the case. I'm not saying that, but sometimes I can tell you a story. There was a preacher that was saying that there was another preacher that he had preached the rapture and he had lived a holy life. But he began to depart from that and preach a different message and it came out later he was living in sin. See, here's the thing. If you read that parable that I just read to you, how many knows whenever the kids are at home and dad's gone, you know, they're wiping peanut butter on the, on the counter 
you know, they're spilling stuff on the carpet, you know, doing all this different stuff. But all of a sudden, they know, hey, dad's about to be home. What are they doing? Man, they're getting out the cleaning solution. They're scrubbing. They're getting everything ready. They're cleaning up because dad's coming. See, the teaching of the imminent return of Christ, what the Bible says that Jesus could return at any time, like a thief in the night. We won't know the day nor the other. We need to be praying and ready at all times. That causes all of us to live like in a holy fear of God. But whenever people depart from that, they kind of get, sometimes they get pretty loose about the way they're living. But it is a scary scripture, and I mean a very scary scripture when you read what I just read. But if that servant or that slave says in their heart, my master's a long time coming and begins to be abusive and begins to be a drunkard, and the Bible says he will come when they're not expecting it. He'll cut them into pieces and throw them into hell. All right, so let me give you this. Where it says that Jesus said he may come at the second or the third watch. I'm about to read over this quickly and leave it. The proper Jewish reckoning recognized three night watches. The first, the beginning of watches in Lamentations 2.19 would have been lasted from around 6 o'clock to around 10 o'clock in the evening. And then you had the second watch, the middle watch, Judges 7, 19, and that would have lasted from around 10 o'clock at night to around 2 in the morning. And then you've got the last watch or the morning watch that would have seen the sunrise, and that would have lasted from around 2 a.m., to around six in the morning so there was these three night watches so figuratively speaking from Adam to Abraham was 2,000 years and that's like watch number one from Abraham to Jesus was 2,000 years that's like watch number two from Jesus till now is 2,000 years that's watch number three It probably, I'm sure, has always been in God's master plan all along that Jesus would come in the third watch. But God's wanting us to watch and be ready. Amen? All right, Jerusalem has also been through 3,000 years of service. There's this principle about in Hosea 6-2, on the third day, I will revive you. There's this principle there. It's like the first, second, third day. And that's what this is symbolically speaking of. All right, I kind of have to move off that, but I think you get the idea. So Jesus is coming in this third watch. And how many of you guys know whenever it was time for things to get serious, things were really about to get real. Jesus had ministered for three and a half years, but now it was time for him to go to the cross. I can only imagine the level of spiritual warfare that was coming against them. You know as well as I do that the devil himself was there and probably most of his very powerful uh, fallen angels, they were zeroing in on Jesus. They were zeroing in on his disciples. Judas got overtaken with that and betrayed Christ. But you see the result there of the heaviness of that late hour as Jesus had had the Passover Seder 
He didn't even finish it. He goes out now with his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And he's giving them kind of his last words. And at the end of his teaching, he's now getting very grieved. It's now becoming very real that his hour has come. And he goes to Gethsemane and he begins to pray. Now he's sweating drops of blood. And he had Peter, James, and John with him. But every time he went to them, they were sleeping. You seeing the pattern? See, in these latter days, it's, it's like, it's severe. The Bible says gross darkness will cover the nations. We know end time prophecy. We know that the devil knows his time is short. And it's like things are going to get really heavy. It's like the enemy is really zeroing in on God's people, those that are a threat. And the tendency, if you're not careful in these latter days, is to begin to fall asleep. But this is the very time the Lord needs us the most to not fall asleep and to rise up and do something for God. So the question poses, when is Jesus going to come? Pre, mid, or post-tribulation time? The big debate. I can only go over this quickly and get off of it, but um, when Jesus is coming, you have to discern what the tribulation is. And by and large, most mainline denominations believe what is called replacement theology. So they believe that Israel is irrelevant. And it all has to do with the church. Most of them do. Look it up. And so that's been taught forever. And so now we've got all these people that kind of have that mentality. And that's where a lot of the problem comes from right here as to why they can't discern when the tribulation is going to happen or when the rapture is going to happen because they think that it has to do with the church or something the tribulation time has absolutely nothing to do with the church it has to do with the nation of israel and i'm going to show you this as we go once you understand what the tribulation is about then it all starts making sense The Bible calls it in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, the days of Jacob's trouble. What was Jacob's name changed to? Israel. You've got it. It's the days of Israel's trouble, not the remnant bride. Also, this is a side note, but the 70th week of Daniel when Daniel was visited by these angels, God gave him 70 weeks. If you can just follow me, I'm going to do a very quick overview of this. But God gave him 70 weeks that he said were determined for your people. So it was for Israel. And every week was a period of seven years. So if you do the math, there is a period of time where it says when the temple was built... The foundation was laid up until the time the Messiah's cut off, okay? That there would be 69 weeks. And you can literally look at this because in verse 25, um, it describes it from the going forth to build Jerusalem, King Artaxerxes in 422 BC. From that time, 69 weeks, you do the math, it was right when Jesus came. Isn't, isn't that something? 
I've read some people, if it's really accurate, I've read some people that, that literally felt that they had studied this thing out and that it went from the time, the day that this decree was made till the day Jesus rode in on a donkey. That's how precise that prophecy was. So there was those 69 weeks, but here's the interesting thing. Jesus comes, and just like Daniel foresaw, the Messiah was cut off. He was crucified. He was not accepted by Israel. And it was as though you guys ever watching like a DVD or Blu-ray, and all of a sudden you push pause. It was as though prophecy was moving forward, but once Israel rejected Christ, it was like God pushed pause. And now the nation of Israel was going to come under a judgment. The gospel was going to go now to the Gentiles. It was going to spread to the nations. But at this time in the last days, there's going to come a point in time after the rapture that Israel is going to sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist and God is going to unpause. And it's going to be that last week, the 70th week of Daniel, that's going to be the tribulation. But just as God told Daniel, God told Daniel that those 70 weeks were determined for your people. Are you following me? This was determined for Israel, not the remnant bride. It's interesting that the first, when you first start reading the book of Revelation, Jesus, everything's about him in chapter 1, and then you go in chapter 2 and 3, literally everything is about the church. Everything. Then Revelation 4.1, a door opens, a voice says, come up here, and then the church is missing, conspicuously missing through the rest of Revelation. So the two comings of Jesus Christ with two completely different descriptions. One, he's coming like a thief to catch away his remnant bride, which I'm going to describe this now in much more depth here in a moment. And the other coming, his glorious appearing, where his feet touch the Mount of Olives and he rules the nations. I've given you scriptures. You can look all this up. But when Jesus came, Jesus came for his three and a half years to the nation of Israel. Matthew 10, 6, 15, 24, it said, Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 24, 21, Jesus lays out the end times, but he's speaking primarily to Israel. In Romans eleven twenty five, there's a mystery of how Israel becomes blind to the gospel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So in a nutshell, here's what happened. God describes Israel as a fig tree. How many of you guys have ever eaten figs? So we know when Jesus cursed the fig tree, he didn't curse all fig trees, okay? We've all have figs. So this, is, this was prophetic here. In Jeremiah 24, 1 through 8, Israel is seen as the fig tree. In Luke 13, 6, the fig tree was cut down after three years. So Jesus is dealing with the nation of Israel. 
How long was Jesus' ministry? Three and a half years. This parable in Luke 13, 6, remember the parable, there was a fig tree that would not produce fruit. And the servant said, well, let me dig around it. Let me fertilize it. Let's wait another year. And eventually the owner said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you another year, but if it doesn't bear fruit after three years, I'm cutting it down. So when Jesus was ending his ministry and he was about to be crucified, he was prophesying and doing this. He goes up to a fig tree, which was out of season anyway, and he curses the fig tree and it withers. But the Bible says in Mark 13, 28, and shows us throughout the Bible, there's different prophetic scriptures that Israel would be revived and be reborn and that it would blossom again. When Jesus comes, I can't get too much on end time prophecy, but when Jesus Christ comes in his glorious appearing, there has to be an Israel, there has to be a Jerusalem, and there has to be a third temple. And so these things already happened. In 48, Israel became a nation. 67, Israel took Jerusalem. But you're going to see the temple rebuilt. And these things have to happen for end-time prophecy. So don't worry. Pray for Israel, but don't worry too much about Israel. Because it has to be there when Jesus comes. Does that make sense? God's going to protect Israel. But some may say, well, Jesus cursed the fig tree and there's this judgment why well let me explain it this way people say well why is it that the tribulation is about israel what you have to understand is when jesus came god sent his own son to israel for three and a half years and jesus preached and taught did all kinds of miracles ministered there after jesus was crucified and rejected by the jewish people Jesus still sends out his people as scribes and as preachers and teachers. And there were actually, the Bible says in Acts, there were even many Levites and priests that came into the faith. That there was a group of believers there in Jerusalem. And God, in his great love, had given Israel his word. He had given Israel his son. And he even gave, him, gave Israel the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. What else could God have done? There's nothing else that he could have done. But 40 is the number of testing. Jesus, for those, you know, he was 30 years old or so. Whenever Jesus' ministry was during those three and a half years, then you've got another 40 years. In 70 AD, God's judgment came because Israel rejected the Messiah. So God judges. Now in comes the, the destruction of the temple. The Jews are scattered among the nations. And without getting too deep into this, the, the menorah, the lampstand, is God's olive tree. It's his family tree. See, the root system of God's family tree is the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a covenant God made with Abraham. But out of that has come a branch. That tree trunk has come up, and that's Christ. And then you had these, these Jewish people that were in there but when the Messiah came and they were rejecting the Messiah, all those that rejected him, their branch got broke off and thrown off to the side, broke off, thrown. And the gospel goes to the nations. And now all these Gentiles are being engrafted in to those broken off branches. And so now you have God's olive tree, his family tree, that is made up of Jews and Gentiles in Christ. 
and the root system is in the covenant made with Abraham that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But God is very faithful and he's not going to permanently forsake Israel. He has allowed Israel to be reborn and when Jesus comes, he's going to come to the nation of Israel. But what you have to understand is that right now the nation of Israel is a secular nation. A lot of people may not realize this, but let me just, I'm trying to help you understand. People say, well, why is this seven-year tribulation going to be like the judgment on Israel? Let me, let me explain it. When something is set apart unto God as holy, like it belongs to him, if that begins to be defiled and get in sin, it will bring judgment. The land of Israel, the physical land, is set apart unto God. The Jewish people among the nations have always been set apart from other nations. The nation of Israel is set apart unto God. And because of sin, to this day, there's still a rejection of the Messiah. Did you know in Israel, I love Israel and I pray for Israel, but to this day, there's still a lot of persecution in Israel against Christians. And the Jewish people, they'll persecute the Messianic believers the Jewish believers in their gatherings are still persecuted to this day. In Israel right now today, it has been the abortion capital of the Middle East. There are gay pride parades marching through Israel. Tel Aviv is like a party central all night long. In fact, the book of Revelation, when it talks about Jerusalem... The book of Revelation calls Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt because of how corrupt it was or corrupt it is. When, a, when something has been set apart unto God and then it's sinful like that, it will bring God's judgment. I know that the Jewish people feel many of them like we know we have built this land and we have done this and we fought the wars and we did this. I love them, but no, you didn't. God did. God did. And because of the persecution to this day against the Messiah, the stubborn refusal to accept the Messiah, and because of all the sin and the pollution that's there, God is going to allow a final judgment on the nation of Israel. It's going to be the days of Jacob's trouble. And Jesus was talking to the Jewish people when he said if those days were not cut short there would be no flesh that would survive as a matter of fact the Antichrist is going to so pursue the Jews that it is only by a supernatural miracle that one-third of them will live and God will preserve them and when Jesus comes they're going to be gathered unto him and the Bible says they're going to look on him who they pierced and they're going to mourn but on that day when they physically see Jesus in Jerusalem on that day, they will believe. And then the prophecy that all of Israel will be saved will be fulfilled because they have now finally accepted their Messiah. Is this making sense tonight? So there's different prophetic types and shadows. I'm going to just kind of go over this quickly and close out. We see Enoch, we see Noah. When the wrath of God came down, Noah and his family floated up. When the wrath of God subsided, they came back 
to the earth again. It's a picture and type of the rapture. Elijah was a man of revival, a man of the anointing, and he was caught away, raptured out. It's interesting that in the Old Testament times when the priest were consecrated unto God and they were about to begin their priestly ministry, that they had to go through a deep consecration. Remember I explained about the blood, the, the immersion, and the oil. But after they did that, they were clothed in their priestly garments and they had to stay at the tabernacle for seven days. It's a picture and type of us being caught away to the marriage supper for seven years. Mount Sinai, the feast days, the Jewish wedding feast, all of this point to a picture and type of, of what I'm talking about with the rapture. Let me just read over this. You guys ever thought about this? You remember when God descended on Mount Sinai and Moses went up to meet the Lord. I want to show you how it's a picture and type of the rapture. The church consists of a kingdom of priests and Israel was a priestly nation. The 24 elders assemble around the throne of God. Revelation 4, 4, the leaders with Moses saw God and ate and drank before his throne. We must cleanse ourselves to be ready. Israel had cleansed themselves to get ready to meet God at Sinai. The Lord appeared on the third day. And there's the third day principle, the third watch principle I've already explained. The Lord appeared in the clouds. It was a meeting in the air. Moses and, and the leaders went up to meet the Lord in the meet God in the clouds. The Lord came down descending from heaven to put his feet directly on the earth. God was at the top of Mount Sinai. The Lord will descend with a shofar blast and God descended on Sinai with a shofar blast. The saints will be caught up and we see Moses and the leaders went up. So it's a picture and type of the rapture of the remnant bride. The Bible warns us in 2 Peter 3, 3, there'd be people walking after their own lust, mocking the coming of the Lord. We know that very quickly, post-tribulation, teaching that Christ will catch away, like a remnant bride catch him away at the end of the tribulation. Most people don't believe this, because to be quite honest, it doesn't really make any sense to be caught away just to come right back. Um, but anyway, Zechariah 14, verse 5, makes it clear that this is where Jesus' feet touch the Mount of Olives. He comes down to the earth. It's not a meeting in the air. And so that doesn't hold any water. Mid-tribulation teaches that during the trumpets of Revelation, there would be a catching away. But I don't have time to go any deeper than this. The trumpets of Revelation have nothing to do with the catching away of the remnant bride. The trumpets of Revelation have to do with the judgment, the wrath of God coming on the earth okay it's not the same thing and so people have to say well what is that last trump i'm about to get to that revelation 9 shows the river euphrates it puts the focus back on the middle east see the focus is going to be on israel and i heard one person give the example and i love it just like you would drop a rock in a pond and it, it would ripple throughout the whole pond the centerpiece is going to be israel but the ripple effect is going to be all over the world and some people that kind of mock the rapture say, well, you know, there was, it came, somebody came up with it in the 1800s. Well, that's not really true. 
There was just one example, but Perry Stone did an amazing job of, of digging up a lot of different teaching of those that's gone before us. But there was this Ephraim of Nisbis that taught um, in 306 and 373 during that time frame that all the saints in the elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation. So that's just not true. All right. Let me give you something real quick. Do you guys want a little bit more? You just want me to close it out? A little bit more. Okay. Well, I don't want to lose you. Because, you know, you keep going. There's all this information. So Holy Spirit, help us just fill everybody up fresh. In Jesus' name, I don't got much more to go, but I don't want to lose you. Arvid, the harvest cycles. The harvest cycles speak of the coming of the Lord. But you're going to have to really follow me on this one, okay? So at Passover during the spring is the barley harvest. Then you have at Pentecost in the summertime, you have the wheat harvest. Then you have at the end, you have at Tabernacle's time, you have the grape harvest. All right, now let me show you. The barley harvest comes in, and it's like a gentle harvest. People would gather that in. You can read about the book of Ruth, but they would gather that in to the threshing floor, and the owner would take a pitchfork called a threshing fork, okay? He would take that, a winnowing fork, and he would toss in, in those threshing floors, there would be a crosswind that would blow through. So he would take the barley and he would toss it up in the air and all the chaff, the wind would blow the chaff over here and the barley would land here, which that would be gathered. And so it was like a gentle harvest in that all it took was just a tossing up to separate it. Then you have the wheat harvest, which was later. The wheat harvest of Pentecost. For that harvest, they had to have these sleds. And these, these sleds had things on the bottom of them. And somebody would stand on the sled. And they would toss the wheat down on the ground. And they would be an animal that would pull that sled. And the weight of the person going over it would crack the hard husk around the wheat but it was like a hard harvest if you will it had to be crushed then at the end of the year you have the grape harvest and all through the bible you read about and i've read you scriptures even today about how jesus um, treads the wine press of god's wrath and fury and treading of the grapes has to do with like the wrath of god coming down so the harvest cycles speak of what's about to happen. What's going to happen is there's a group of believers that the wind of the Holy Spirit is going to prepare us. We're going to be those that answer the call to prayer. We're going to spend time with God. We're going to get in on this revival God's sending in the last days. And because of that, we're going to get our garments purified. How many of us, and I include myself in this, God has been purifying us? Amen. And God is deeply consecrating us. He's, he's doing a work in us. He's getting all the stuff out of us that needs to go. And it's a gentle harvest. It's like the wind of the Spirit blows through and separates things that needs to go. We're answering the call. And there's going to come a point in time when we're just going to be caught up to be with the Lord, the marriage supper. And what's going to happen at the catching away of the remnant bride 
I'm getting ahead of myself, but Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And he said, in my father's house are many mansions. He didn't say he was going to build mansions. He said, they're already there. This is what he said. I go to prepare a place for you. You know what he's doing? He's preparing the wedding feast. There's going to come a time when the remnant bride that's without spot or blemish, they become wise virgins with extra oil that there's going to be a catching away in the air to meet the Lord in the air. All right, that's going to leave now the people that are not right with God. How many people call themselves Christians? How many people go to church? It's just a social club. They got unrepentant sin in their life. They're not right. They've been resisting the Holy Spirit. Some of them probably make fun of the move of the Holy Spirit, mock it. Well, they're going to be left here. And they're going to have to endure the tribulation time. And it's going to be like that sled. It's going to be a crushing that they're going to go through. But how many of you knows that whenever the rapture happens, that there's going to be a lot of people that have played games that are going to get very serious very fast. I mean, there's going to be one of the greatest revivals is the next day after the rapture. Because all the people that played with God... Now, I'm being serious. There, you're going to find churches packed. People are going to be in there. They're going to have their little communion set. They're going to be on their face. God, forgive me, forgive me. And they're going to be saying, please take me too. Don't leave me here. And they're going to be weeping and bawling their eyes out, repenting, getting things right with God. And, and many of them are going to get real serious. And they're going to start realizing that most likely I'm either going to have to give my life during this time or I'm going to have to go off the grid and live like some kind of hermit. And it's going to be a very difficult time. But the Bible talks about the tribulation saints. That there's going to be a group of people that died during the tribulation time. But they're brought unto the Lord. And they're given white robes to wear. And they're put under the altar. So there are tribulation saints. But that's the crushing. They've got to go through the crushing. How many of you guys know? I think I would just rather be that gentle harvest. That's saying, Holy Spirit, do a work in me. You know, just, I want to be ready, you know, whatever. I don't care how painful it is. You've got to show me how ugly things look to you. That's okay. Just do a work in me. Instead of being stubborn and then get crushed. But then at the end of the tribulation time is going to be when there's been so much of the crushing that has happened. The wine press of God's wrath has been crushed. And the Bible says that Jesus will come and send his angels to gather the elect that remain. That's going to be that final gathering, the grape harvest, if you will. Does this make sense tonight? So the harvest cycles in Israel speak of these three main harvests that are coming in. So not everybody that calls themselves a Christian will be ready, only those that watch and pray, those that look for him. Remember the parables of Jesus Christ. Take them serious. Take them serious. The unprofitable servant, the ten virgins. Backsliders will not have time to repent. And how many knows when that shout and that shofar blast that the world isn't going to hear that? It's going to be the remnant bride. Those that, that are playing games with God, they may hear something, but they're not going to be caught away. They're going to be like, well, what was that noise? Do you remember that happened when Jesus was on the earth and God's voice spoke? And some people said, well, I thought I heard thunder. 
Not everybody has eyes to, eyes to see and ears to hear. There's going to be scoffers. We've got to discern the times. Don't be lukewarm. There's going to be falling away. Let me say this, and then I've got one more subject to cover about the Jewish wedding feast, and I'm going to close this out. But let me say one more thing. The Bible predicts there's going to be a falling away. And this is one of the hardest things for me as a pastor to see happen. The Bible says in Matthew 13, 39, that the end of the age is the harvest, but the first harvest were the tares. There's all these tares among the wheat. There's all these tares among the wheat out there. Read that parable. The devil sowed it. It's sad. But there's a lot of people sprinkled among the churches that, that have never truly repented. They've never truly been born of God and they've never really changed. But man, they know the lingo. They, you know, Matthew 7, 21 is the, one of the scariest scriptures. Lord, Lord, we prophesied. We healed the sick in your name. How can you do that? I mean, these are people among the household of faith. We cast out demons. But he's going to throw them into hell. I never really knew you. You lived in unrepentant sin. There's these tares among the wheat that are not the real deal. And the Bible says the first gathering of the angels will be the tares being separated out. And then Paul writes about how some will abandon the faith. And he writes about to the Thessalonians, he said that there would be a great falling away or apostasia. That's all the same thing. What's happening is, is that God is getting serious about cleaning his house. Judgment begins in the household of God. And so God begins to send a purifying fires of revival and begins to send out his angels. And people are being separated. And you're finding that people that were never really the real deal anyway are leaving. And first John wrote about that. I don't have the reference being looked up. He said their leaving showed they were never really of us in the first place. But God is separating out the tares. But our blessed hope in the rapture of the church. How many look forward to that day? think about it for a minute those that have made themselves ready a bride that is repented let god purify us our priestly wedding garments our priestly garments are washed we've been consecrated we've been anointed like an esther remember esther had to bathe and be anointed with oils prepared to meet with the king it's like a preparation that's been going on in our lives god's purifying a bride and there's going to come a point in time where there's this catching away and we're going to be at the wedding feast. So let me give you this last thing I wanted to give you is the ancient Jewish wedding in Matthew 25. And I'm going to close with that. Y'all want to hear it? And then we'll do some shofar blasting here at the end. So the ancient Jewish wedding ritual that took place back in Jesus' time. So they would be, let me just tell you the story and just follow me and then all these other scriptures i've read to you many of them will make more sense in this time a young man will go down to the well because that's where the young ladies went to draw water that was part of their chores so if he wanted to get married he would go hang out around the well and he's kind of scoping out the ladies all right 
If he finds a young lady that he's interested in, he wouldn't approach her. He would go to her father. Now follow me because all this is actually really important. He would go to her father. And as he went to her father, he would say, I'm interested in taking your daughter as my wife. And the father would say, well, obviously, you know, you have to give a dowry. And so he would say to him, well, I'll tell you what. I've got a couple camels I can give you. I've got a couple sheep. I've got this goat. I've got this, that, and the other. You know, and I can get this dowry together and give it to you. And the father would say, oh, wait a second. You know, I've been feeding her for a long time. <laughs> so they would barter. He would say, well, I'll throw in a couple more sheep, and I'll throw in this, you know. And so they would come to an agreement, this, this man with the father. They would come into an agreement. And when they did, then the young lady would be brought in. They would, they would pour a cup of wine, and they would set it on the table. And her dad was telling her, now listen, this young man has showed an interest in you being his wife. It has my approval, and he's brought the dowry and everything, and I've already told him yes, but, you know, we're going to leave it up to you. Are you okay with this? And she would take the cup of wine, and if she agreed to it, she would drink that and set it down. So now the deal is closed. The young man is saying, all right, now I've got to go prepare a place for my bride. They're not married yet, but in this culture... They might as well be because she is off limits. And when she left that house now, what she would do is she would wear a veil. Just like today, people wear an engagement ring. And it sends a message saying, I'm off limits. I'm spoken for. She would begin to wear a veil. So she was still going out to the well. But any other young man that came and was looking would see the ones with a veil and say, well, they're off limits. They're already spoken for. They belong to another. But this young man, after she drank the cup of wine, he was now excited. He says, I've got to go prepare a place for us. So he would run, run back to his dad's house, and he would begin to build a bridal chamber to bring her back to. And while he's working on it, his dad would come in and inspect it and try to help him out, maybe give him some advice. Now, son... That is about as crooked as I've ever seen a piece of wood nailed up. You need to fix that. If you don't fix that, a good wind's going to come in. That's going to fall on your wife, you know. And he would go in there and help him out. This young man would finally, as he's building this, would get it done. But listen, that young man never knew the day nor the hour, only his father. When the father came and saw that he was pleased with everything, and this could take up to two years, when his father came in and saw that he was really pleased with everything and felt it was time, he would tell his son, now's the time, go get your bride. And so the young man would get his friends together. And one of them would grab the, a shofar and they would begin to go in the middle of the, night, of the night and they would be shouting, behold, the bridegroom comes. Behold, the bridegroom comes. And people are hearing this and they're getting awakened out of their slumber, but they're, they're happy for them. I said, man, somebody's getting married, you know. And they're going toward this bride's house, and, and somebody's blasting the shofar, and they're, they're shouting. Y'all seeing the symbolism? 
Behold, the bridegroom comes. There's a shout. There's a shofar blast. And when they get there, the young man will take a ladder and lean it up against the house. He'll go up and he'll grab that bride and pull her out the window. Now listen, the bride, she had kept herself veiled. She had kept herself off limits, off limits to anybody else. She had kept herself pure. That's our responsibility. We belong to the Lord. We're bought with a price. We've got to live that veiled life. People should see us and realize they're off limits. They're not like other people. She also, this is going to make sense here in a moment, she had a lamp in her room. Every night she went to sleep, she made sure that lamp was lit. And she also would keep an extra reservoir of oil because he might come in the middle of the night, he might come in the second or the third watch. And so she had to have a little reserve of oil. And when she heard the friends shouting, Behold, the bridegroom comes and the shofar, she's wondering, this could be me. And then pretty soon, her bridegroom's outside shouting her name and she realizes, it is me. And she begins to pull up the wick and trim it and pour that extra reserve of oil in. And now she's ready. And she's going to go out the window. Remember, the Bible says, I see heaven open come up here a catching away she's going to be caught out the window with her bridegroom and now they're going to go to a place that has been prepared for a wedding ceremony now there was what's called a hopa that was set up like a a covering a place where they would have somebody there that they could do the vows and they could exchange those vows but in biblical times they were not considered completely married until they consummated their marriage Now, this is going to sound weird to your culture but this is the way it was and still is in some places so after they exchanged vows and this was complete there they had to go consummate their marriage or they were not considered married and so the ritual was that the bed where they were going to lay that there would be a sheet there and when things were proper and she was a virgin and they consummated, there would be a little bit of blood that was shed. And so that sheet now was a witness of a blood covenant between her and her husband. And he would take that sheet and he would go out to the door and he would show it to the witness that's there. And the witness would shout, it's finished. They're married. It's done. And now seven days of partying begins. Seven days. Think about how long that is. They would celebrate for seven days. And so the bride and the bridegroom would come out and they would start celebrating with everybody. It's a picture and type of what's coming. Let me read to you as I close out this sermon and we're going to pray. Let me read to you Matthew 25. The kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. It doesn't say five harlots and five virgins. Five harlots would be sinners. So we're not talking here about lost people versus saved people. We're talking about Christians. And please keep that in mind. This is important. Now these ten virgins took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Remember all this ceremony. Remember? Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they did not take oil. They did not have that extra reservoir. So when the Lord came at the second or third watch, they had run out of oil by that time. 
But the wise took oil and flask along with their lamps. They took that extra reservoir. Now the bridegroom was delaying and they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Prayerlessness. The devil's trying to get God's people to fall asleep spiritually, guys. I hope you see it. I hope you feel it. It's a religious spirit. There's something trying to cause the church to be a Laodicean, lukewarm group of people that are ineffective and are not as ready for the Lord as what they think. That's the great deception. People that are deceived don't know they're deceived. You'll preach like this and they think, oh, it's for somebody else. Really? Verse 7, Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Then the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. But the wise said, No, there won't be enough for you and us together. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. You know what? I believe that speaks of revival. God has been pouring out his spirit, and the wise virgins are going and receiving. You guys are here tonight for a reason, because God the Holy Spirit drew you in. And you know as well as I do, River of Life, that God the Holy Spirit has been calling us to consecrate our lives like a bride. God the Holy Spirit has been filling us up with extra oil. You know it as much as I do. He's filling us with extra oil. He's getting us ready. And while they were going to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready, everybody say ready. ready. Not all ten of them, those that were ready. Went in to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open the door to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Does that parable make more sense now? See, God is calling us to be a bride that has made herself ready. That we're repenting and getting purified. There's so many people out there, I love them, but I would say 9 out of 10 people that we witness to out every time we go on Saturday nights, those that are going out with touching hearts, those that are going out sometimes with Pastor Stephen, 9 out of 10 of them will say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But you start talking to them and you realize that they're not close to the Lord. They're not living right. They're living in unrepentant sin. There's a reason why God gave us that divine appointment because now we're really talking to them about getting real. But when the Lord comes, if they don't repent, they're not going to be ready. They're going to be the foolish virgins that the door opened and the wise went, then the door was shut. They're going to be the ones at church the next Sunday on their face. Hopefully their pastor's missing. Jesus help us. But anyway, and they're going to be there on their face repenting, getting right with God. I can just see them, man. They're all passing around communion, all frantic, you know trying to get things right with God, and they're, they're, they're all calling now a fast. Now they're getting serious. Now they want to pray. Now they want to fast. But they're going to realize, they're saying, Lord, take us too. Take, and, and it's too late. The Lord says, no, you're going to be here for seven years, or however long. I mean, many people will die during that time. You know why? Because they won't take the mark of the beast. What will happen is the first three and a half years of the tribulation time, the rapture will happen, and then sometime after that, the Antichrist is going to make a peace treaty with Israel. When they do that, see, the Antichrist is Satan's emissary. When Israel, when the Knesset and the prime minister make a pact 
with the Antichrist. They've made a pact, in essence, with the devil. Jesus said, you didn't receive me when I came in my name, but you'll receive another when he comes in his name. You see? And when they do that, that's going to release now its time. The 70th week of Daniel, it's unpaused. Now Daniel's 70th week is here. It's the days of Jacob's trouble and judgment's coming. And so the first three and a half years, the false prophet is going to try to make everybody take a mark. But all these Christians are going to be saying, I'm not taking a mark. And many of them will be rounded up and they'll be killed or they'll go live off the grid somehow. And that's going to be the trumpet judgments, the, rat, the, the judgment, the wrath of the Lamb is coming down by the way that the world is treating his Christians. But then the Antichrist is going to set himself up in the temple. He's going to have a talking statue. And he's going to demand that Israel worship him and worship his image. And Israel is going to refuse to do it. How many knows that there's a lot of Jewish people that are just not going to bow down and worship a man as God? And they're not going to bow down to a graven image. They know better. And so they're going to refuse to do it. And the Antichrist is going to release his military forces to slaughter the Jews. Hitler killed one-third. The Antichrist will kill two-thirds. But God will sovereignly, supernaturally remember his covenant with Abraham. And he is going to supernaturally gather a third of them and take them to a safe place probably it's Petra and Jordan and they're going to be hidden there and the Antichrist can't touch them but during that first three and a half years the 144,000 are going to be witnessing you imagine 144,000 Jews like the Apostle Paul they're going to be on fire they're going to be going all over but, but they're all dead by the mid-tribulation see the Christians are going to be just slaughtered by and large but the last three and a half years it's called the Great Tribulation that is when the Antichrist now has turned against Israel and the Jews. And he slaughters two-thirds of them. And that's going to be the bold judgments. God's wrath is going to come down. And that's also going to be the days, I believe, when the two witnesses will be on the earth. Can you imagine how cool that will be? Read the story. I mean, you've got Moses and Elijah. And they're there, in my opinion, the last three and a half years. The Antichrist has slaughtered two-thirds of the Jews. He hates them. He hates them more than you and I can imagine. He wants them dead. But every time somebody tries to mess with them, they're breathing out, they're calling out fire, breathing out fire on them and frying them all. You know that's going to be awesome to see. I'm hoping at the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus turns over with the remote and clicks on the big screen, says, watch my witnesses. And we get to see some of that, and then he turns it back off, we get back to feasting. But that's going to be neat. And those two witnesses are going to be there prophesying. The reason why the world hates them is because they're blaming the two witnesses for what's going on. Moses is one of them, and he's going, and the water is going to turn to blood. And all of a sudden, all the water turns to blood. And they're all ticked at him like he did it. He's saying, I'm just telling you what God said. Anyway. And then at the end of those seven years, Jesus is going to split the eastern sky. What's going to happen is the devil is going to get all the nations to come against Israel to slaughter Israel. And when they surround Israel, they're going to be, you know as well as I do, the remaining are just going to be desperately crying out to God. See, the judgment, the days of Jacob's trouble has broken the stubborn pride and broken down those people to a place 
of saying, Yeshua, come. They're saying salvation. That's what Jesus' name means, salvation. They're saying, God, send salvation, send Yeshua. Jesus is going to split the eastern sky. We're going to be with him. I'm going to have a white horse. My wife will too. She thinks hers is going to be awesome. We'll just see, baby. We'll see. But anyway, we're all going to come back with Jesus, and he is going to slaughter. All those armies are going to be killed just by him speaking him. He's going to send his angels, and they're going to grab the Antichrist and the false prophet and throw them alive in the lake of fire. And Jesus is going to slaughter the enemies of Israel, and that's when his feet hit the Mount of Olives, and it splits, and he comes in to rule and reign for a thousand years. Now, we've painted the picture. This makes a lot more sense now, doesn't it? So the wrath of God that's coming on the earth is the days of Jacob's trouble, it is not intended to be against the bride of Christ. See, we're the remnant bride over here. I pray all of us are. We're the remnant bride, the five wise virgins, those that are getting washed, those like the barley harvest. We're, we want to be ready. Those are going to be the ones that are going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I want to be among those. All right, we're going to close this out. Just go ahead and shut down all the recordings. And after you're done, I'm going to do some shofar blast tonight, and then we'll pray for people. Y'all okay with that? Can y'all help me out?